I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And And this this is Sinai Sinai Temple Torah Torah Talk, a channel for your daily dose of drash, abyssal Torah, from our home to yours. Catch up with the latest rabbi sermons, Torah classes, rabbinic insights, and more. Follow us now so you don't miss a word. Infusing Torah in our daily lives. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the concluding Torah for Thursdays of this year. Um, the Torah will continue. The class will resume after the holidays next year. Um, and uh, we'll give you the summer to absorb all the Torah of the preceding year and also to look around the internet for lots and lots of wonderful sites of Torah to learn from. And it's fitting to conclude today because we conclude also with the book of Ayikra, the third book of the Torah, the book of Leviticus. The, um, the last two parashiot, um, Bahar and Bechukotai, are often uh, conjoined, that is, they're often done together. But as it happens this year, because of the vagaries of the schedule and the Jewish calendar is, is something that is let us just say a bit complex. Um, because of that, uh, Bahar and Bechukotai are separated and, and this week we have only Bechukotai. And Bechukotai actually raises some of the deepest questions of, um, of theology and we're not gonna answer them, but I wanna present some of the different ways of approaching them uh, in the next uh, several minutes. Uh, because what Bechukotai says is something that is, seems manifestly untrue, um, although many people still um, seem to believe it. That is, it starts off by saying, if you follow my laws um, and faithfully observe my commandments, uh, and you can imagine what follows, I will grant rains in the season, the earth will produce, the earth will yield its produce and the trees of the field, their fruit, your threshing shall overtake, I'll grant peace in the land, on and on and on, all sorts of different um, different promises that at least in our historical experience have not always been true. Now, there are ways of, of explaining this that of course are not simply, oh, well, the promise isn't true. You can say, for example, that we haven't followed God's laws. And this is one of those easily confirming um, issues because there's always somebody breaking God's laws somewhere. Um, In fact, there's always everyone breaking God's laws everywhere. And so if you set the bar high enough, it is easy to say, well, obviously God said, if you don't do those rotten things that you are doing, then everything would be fine. But since you're doing those rotten things, not helpful. Um, And this is one of the reasons why there are constant exhortations in the Bible to repent, because things are often going badly. And so uh, there's a certain confirmation bias there. Things are going badly. We know that things go badly because people are evil. Stop being evil. Things will go well. Also, there's not a one-on-one correlation between things going well 
and people doing well. So um, sometimes when the people are good, things go very well. And that reinforces this idea. Other times, obviously, they don't. And then what happens is we, we imbibe the reasoning and tend to apply it to our lives. So when something goes badly, people will say, mm, you know, if I fasted on Yom Kippur or if I kept Shabbat, maybe this wouldn't have happened to me. And I don't want to entirely sever, and, and I don't think anyone does, the cause from effect um, in the sense that how you behave has an effect in the world and how the Jewish people has behaved has certainly had an effect in the world. And yet it seems so clearly not the one-on-one -on -one correspondence that the Torah suggests here. And similarly with the second paragraph of the Shema, where it says, and if you listen. Um, and one of, the, one of the explanations that I wanna give for this is that this is a moral training uh, passage, by which I mean, when you train kids to be good, what do you do? You say, if you take that cookie, you will be punished. Um, maybe cookie isn't a good example. Uh, if you hit that kid, there we go. If it's something that is really morally, taking the cookie is not a moral question. But if you hit that kid, you'll be punished. And then the kid doesn't hit the other kid. Why do you do that? You do that not only because you don't want the second kid to be hit, but because you hope that in time, that which begins as a punishment will become an intrinsic value. That is, I, by the time you're an adult, presumably, you don't refrain from hitting people because you're gonna be punished. You refrain from hitting people because you believe it's wrong. And similarly in the Torah, um, there is this grappling with reward and punishment, but the larger purpose is not to say God will always punish you when you do bad things and will always reward you when you do good things, because anybody who lives in this world knows that that is often not the case. But rather, it is a, moral, a, a process of moral education that will enable you when you get older to say, I do these things or I don't do these things because I believe them to be um, right and or wrong. Uh, so um, let me also just say, for those of you who are watching um, on YouTube, apparently we're having some problem in, uh, in putting this on Facebook, but you can watch it on YouTube. Although if you're trying to watch it on Facebook, you wouldn't know that I'm saying to you, you can watch it on YouTube, but nonetheless, uh, that apparently is the case. That's what I'm, that's what I'm being told by the, uh, by the tech gurus. Um, okay, anyway, uh, see, and, and we're all behaving well, and yet it's not working. Um, this is being recorded to Zoom. We're, well, one second, let me just, I will get you the message um, from Gary, we're troubleshooting. Yes, I do know that we're being recorded, but you know what? This is called breaking the fourth wall. That is, we're telling you it's actually happening as we're doing this. It's like when all of a sudden, um, it's like at the end of Burning Saddles when they break through the scene. Uh, anyway, um, it will be available afterwards, obviously, um, since it's recorded. 
including these remarks, which have nothing to do with what we're supposed to be studying. They are just a, uh, a byway of my unruly thoughts. Um, the other part of Bechukotai, though, that is, uh, that is germane to this issue is that towards the end of Bechukotai, you have the Tochecha, the Tochecha being the, um, the uh, rebuke that um, the Torah gives to the Israelites and, and it's in very explicit and painful terms. If you do not listen, these terrible things will happen to you. And, and the things are, I will lay your cities in ruin, make your sanctuaries desolate, um, make the land desolate, your enemies will be, so that your enemies even will be appalled by it, I'll scatter you among the nations, your land shall become a desolation and your cities a ruin, on and on and on and on. The most horrible prophecies, which as we know in Jewish history have sometimes come true. And so you understand the emotive power of God saying um, in, in this way, good things will happen. And in, if, you, uh, if you misbehave, these terrible things will happen. This raises the larger question, uh, which is a truly fascinating one and, and deeply discussed among the great minds of the religious tradition about the extent to which and the way in which God does or does not intervene in the running of the world. Um, some people believe, for example, in Hashkacha Pratit, that is that God superintends the individual um, in this world and what you do is somehow in partnership conformity um, according to uh, protected by God's um, superintendence. Others believe that it works on a more national level. Others, still others believe that any kind of superintendence from God is ultimately hidden. That it's not something that you can see and the idea of God's Hester um, Panim, the hiding of God's face, is something that begins in the in the Torah and then becomes a theme throughout uh, a certain strand of Jewish religious literature. The idea that God does normally superintend, but there are moments when God withdraws, when God's face is hidden, when when God becomes inaccessible to human beings um, for whatever reason. Uh, then there is also the idea that. Um, that God creates the world and effectively gives human beings as much room to maneuver as possible. And so people operate somewhat independently of the sway and influence of God uh, in this world. All of these ideas and many others um, are possible in ways of understanding how God does or does not function in this world. Um, and it is very hard to decouple the good fortune or bad fortune of individuals or people from, uh, from God. And one of the ways, of course, that, that we do this, although this is only a piece of it, is through free will. That is, yes, God superintends, but human beings also have choice. Yet even apart from that, there still is the sense among some, for example, that everything that happens is in conformity with God's will. 
which is a proposition that is very difficult sometimes to believe given some of the horrible things um, that happen in this world, everything from the unspeakable school shooting um, to the war in Ukraine, to the Shoah, to the pandemic, I mean, on and on and on. Are all of those things in fact in conformity with God's will? Well, some uh, classical thinkers will say, yes, they are, and you just don't understand the larger picture. But I must say that that's a very difficult um, proposition to absorb and understand. Uh, having said that though, a lot of our prayers um, echo in one way or another this, uh, this um, sort of seesaw from Leviticus. That is, if you do good, good things will happen. If you do bad, bad things will happen. Um, and yet it is hard not to believe, at least it's hard for me not to believe, that the purpose of this is to move us beyond it. That is, that the Torah's intention is not to stay at the, you must observe so you get rewarded, you must observe so you don't get punished, as opposed to you must observe because observance is part of what you understand to be both your mission and your fulfillment um, in this world, which is, I think, the greatest um, motivation for and, and reason to want to observe anything um, that is meaningful in this world, right? You don't want someone to love you because you give them stuff. You may, in the course of falling in love or being in love, give things to express your love. And the giving may, in some ways, deepen your love, both for the giver and the receiver. But the sole motivation for being in love cannot be because I get stuff from them, right? I mean, at a certain point, my parents stopped sending me money. I still love them. I didn't say, oh, I love you less now because, you know, now that I'm out of college, you're not giving me anything. Um, and so the the sort of mechanical utilitarian uh, quid pro quo that exists in a partial like the Chukotai, um, I think is because the Israelite people are young and because people start their religious life young. And this is intended to be a, one of the first rungs on the ladder to a devotion that is supposed to surpass it. Because we would not want our love of God to be more instrumental than our love of other human beings. And if you can love someone else selflessly, then one presumes you ought to be able to love God selflessly. Um, as at least in our tradition, we believe God loves us. I mean, God doesn't get anything from us. God has expectations of us, but not because we can give God something. When, uh, unlike Greek gods, when you sacrifice, it's not because God literally eats the sacrifice as the Greek gods did. Um, it's because you're showing God devotion, which is far less important for God than it is for us. All of this, as I said, um, concludes the book of Leviticus. And part of the reason that it is so fitting is the book of Leviticus is, after all, primarily about the ritual in the temple. And the ritual in the temple is the sacrifices that tend to be um, 
that tend to be uh, the um, ways in which the gods are the gods in classical mythology are propitiated. That is, they're made to be happy, um, and and we get very detailed instructions about how to do that in the Book of Leviticus. But again, the instructions are not because without this, God can't. Um, God can't uh, be satisfied um, with the sacrifice, but rather a human, each, each law of the sacrifice is something that human beings learn from or could learn from. Um, and the priests themselves, their task and everything from their outfits to their ritual is something that symbolizes uh, an aspect of the Jewish tradition and our this situates us in the cosmos because the temple is a sort of mini cosmos in the world um, in our tradition. So uh, the, the stop action that Leviticus is, because Exodus is a sort of, you know, it's an action book and then Numbers is another action book and Leviticus is the stop action, is to set up these deep theological meanings. And um, the Levites who are, who give the book obviously of Leviticus, it's mainly the Levites um, who are a separate tribe and don't have land uh, and, and whose job it is to uh, superintend the temple. Um, they do in the midst of describing their functions, they do remind us nonetheless of what all these functions are meant to symbolize which is why in some ways the most sublime verse in all of Torah is in the middle of the book of Leviticus in chapter 19, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And it seems incongruous in some ways that this should be smack in the middle of a book about ritual, but it allows us to recognize that the ritual has deep theological interpersonal meaning, both Ben Adam Lamakom and Ben Adam Lachavero. Um, mitzvot in the Jewish tradition are divided up into two different emphases or directions. Ben Adam Lachavero be, means between one person and another. Ben Adam Lamakom means between the human being and God. And, uh, and of the two, I think it is fair to say that the Torah um, places. Uh, different kinds of emphasis on each, but that ultimately someone who is kind Ben Adam Lachavero is considered to have honored his maker or her maker. Um, someone who is kind Ben Adam Lamakom is not necessarily uh, considered to have honored um, God because, uh, um, or rather to have honored other human beings because you can be ritually punctilious and still be a jerk. Um, and, and, that's, uh, and that obviously uh, makes your ritual um, behavior suspect in the deepest way because the Torah sees all human beings not, not as solely individual bounded selves, but as a network. Right, we're all created in the image of God, which means that in some way we are all tied together. 
nobody is an entirely autonomous separate being. This is Buber's I thou, but it's not only I thou, it's also I us, I them, I everyone. Um, we, are, we are all knit together in this vast web of creation and therefore how we treat the other aspects of creation is gonna be integral to how we are understood um, to be uh, either good or not good um, servants of God. And the book of Leviticus reminds us of this by focusing so powerfully on Ben Adam Lamakom, on human beings and God, and allowing to periodically, allowing room for the shafts of light to, um, to illuminate the human element of this, like Ben Adam Lachavero, between one person and another, by verses like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which um, forcefully reminds us that this is not a detached ideal that we're talking about when we talk about uh, ritualistic behavior, but in fact is profoundly tied up with humans, human beings, human relations, um, and the social order. Uh, we are now, let me just close uh, by making a couple of remarks. Um, we are now in the 41st day of the Omer, of the uh, counting of the Omer, um, and uh, and we're moving towards Shavuot. The holiday of Shavuot is, of course, the holiday of the uh, giving of the Torah, because there are 50 days between leaving Egypt and coming to Sinai. It's also the barley harvest. And even though Shavuot does not have the same kind of particular observances um, that uh, that other holidays have, like there's no Passover Seder for Shavuot, um, there's no uh, there's no Sukkah for Shavuot, uh, um, and uh, but today's 40th day of the Omer. I said 41st, but I meant 40th day of the Omer. Um, is uh, I was thinking, well, we're what we count tonight, but you're not supposed to count in advance. So today's the 40th day of the Omer. Um, the, the counting also reminds us that um, a good life is lived by counting every day. Again, a ritualistic practice that has a deep human meaning that each day counts. Um, and having passed Lagba Omer, the sense of heaviness of the Omer has now begun to lift, and uh, we look forward to standing together at Sinai. Um, and I hope that many of you will, who haven't yet, will actually come if you feel safe and comfortable to synagogue to be together in community, since that's how we stood at Sinai, was as a community. Um, and uh, that's how all of the Chukotai describes us. Um, it's what you do right and what you do wrong as a people, not as individuals. So with that, I, uh, I hope you have a meaningful and uh, learned Shavuot because the tikkun of Lil Shavuot is a tradition that you should learn the night of Shavuot, just as uh, the Torah is coming. We show that we are awake and aware and ready for it. Um, and thank you for joining me uh, all through this very continually strange year 
for Thursday morning Torah and God willing, come next year, we will be able to resume in person as we did before. And uh, I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you. Goodbye.